You are listening to the Ibn Abi Umar podcast. This is your host, Umar Osman. So last Friday, I gave what I would term, I guess, my first quote-unquote regular khutbah in over a year since, you know, since the pandemic started, right? Since quarantine, March 2020. And when that happened, much started shutting down. Juma prayer got canceled. All those things happened and we didn't really know what to expect, how long it was going to last, what the impact was going to be. I envisioned in my head that this was going to last for maybe a few weeks and then we'd have this, you know, triumphant return to the masjid after this, you know, pandemic was over and the virus was defeated and all of that. But I don't think anyone really foresaw what was going to happen for, you know, a whole year after that point. And it's been a mixed bag, and it's been interesting to see how people have responded to it. And Friday prayer in particular, because it is such an institution of the community. And, you know, just going through all the debates and discussions, should the masjid remain open? Should Friday prayer remain open? You know, if grocery stores are open, if other quote-unquote essential services are open, well, then shouldn't the masjid, shouldn't Juma prayer? And then on the other hand, people are saying like, no, we need to minimize the spread minimize all the places where you're going to see people you know all these discussions have happened over time and communities have all responded differently some you know i know some masjids that in america that remained open essentially operating at full capacity for the whole year uh, not making any real changes shoulder to shoulder foot to foot you know whatever the case may be other places canceled altogether and i think what most people did is scaling back the masjid that I pray at most regularly, for example, they shifted to having two prayers instead of one, limiting the number of people that are able to to attend each prayer, mandating some type of social distancing, and everyone wear a mask, everyone bring your own prayer rug, and shortening the khutbah to 10 minutes, right? So everyone's only inside for 15 minutes, and then they head out. And so one thing that's also been interesting, especially from the perspective of you know, managing the Juma prayer, right, running a khutbah, all of these things is the length of the Friday prayer. And this was kind of a good experiment to see, well, what does a shorter khutbah look like? And after doing a handful of 10-minute khutbahs during, you know, during the pandemic, I can honestly say I'm not much of a fan and I'll explain why, because I know that there's this immediate reaction to, well, the sunnah is to have like a complete, you know, a very, very short khutbah and then a long prayer. So how can you say that you don't like it? And let me let me explain what I mean by that. For the khutbah to fulfill the true purpose of a sermon, especially in an age where this is the only religious address that the majority of people hear during the week, the super short khutbah doesn't accomplish that purpose of delivering a proper religious reminder. In fact, I would say that it makes it almost extremely ritualistic and it removes the component of having to put effort into like a well-crafted message. You know, I, I can say for myself that if I was scheduled for khutbah and it was a 10-minute, if it was like just a 10-minute juma, I didn't have to do much prep work because literally almost anyone can get up, give the, you know, give the opening supplication give a five-minute reminder, quote a hadith, you know, quote a couple of ayat, add a, you know, just a very brief explanation, close it out and pray. Like, it's, it doesn't take much work. And when there's not much work and effort being put in by the speaker, 
the audience essentially, you know, the audience gets that same energy. They're not going to get any benefit because no one put effort into what they were saying. It's just, it's simply at that point, fulfilling an obligation. And so from that perspective, it doesn't really accomplish the true purpose of having that religious reminder. And so for me, and I, you know, I know that there's always a debate, right? How long should it be? I like the idea of about a 20 minute khutbah because it gives the ability to create a message, develop some depth around it, develop some, you know, perspective, some talking points, some examples, finding ways to make it resonate with different parts of the audience while still not being so long that it bores people completely or makes them tune out. And that 20 minutes, it's, you know, it's funny, like that's about the length of time of a half hour TV show, right? When you subtract the advertisements, it's about the length of something like a TED Talk style of presentation. And so that length for me is ideal. And there's another component to this that sometimes gets a little bit lost, especially from an organizational point of view, which is having that longer window of time actually makes the logistics quite a bit easier. If you only have a 10 minute window, right? Or your entire Joma experience is 15 minutes, then it means everyone's arriving right at the same time. And that jams up your parking, that jams up the wudu areas, that, you know, it just creates a lot of traffic. It creates a bottleneck essentially for everyone trying to get in. And then you also have more people that are going to end up missing the prayer than you normally would. In, in the other scenario where you have, and again, for me, the ideal for the whole experience is 30 minutes, right? So you have the, from the Avan to the Salam being 30 minutes. That allows people 15 minutes to commute in, 15 minutes to commute back and attend the entire Jummah all within, all within what would be like a one hour lunch break. That for me would be the ideal length of time for the Jummah prayer. Anything longer than 20 minutes 25 30 minutes i've even heard of some massages that have like a 45 minute you know juma khutbah that gets again that also defeats the purpose of the religious reminder because now it goes from a reminder and uplifting message and it turns it into a class it turns it almost like into a seminar and that's also not the purpose of what the khutbah experience should be so for me, that that twenty minute length is about ideal. It if again, it felt good this week to get back to that, and I think more and more massages are getting back to that. You know, as people are getting vaccinated, as things are opening up, and so I wanted to share this recording, just almost as a means of even documenting for myself just that return to semi normalcy, in a sense. So with that, we'll have a little fic of social media promo. If you haven't gotten the fic of social media book yet please make sure you get a copy. And if you have gotten it, if you have read it, I would love to hear your comments. And even more than that, it would really help out a ton if you left a review of the book on Amazon. That helps tremendously if you got any benefit from the book. So please check that out and play that little promo. And I'll have the recording of the khutbah here right after that. The brand new book, Fiqh of Social Media, Timeless Islamic Principles for Navigating the Digital Age by Omar Usman and with a foreword by Sheikh Abdul Nasser Jangda is now available to purchase on Amazon. Praised by multiple prolific Islamic speakers and scholars, the book serves as a guide 
on how to maintain your spiritual integrity online, navigate the ever-changing landscape of social media, applying prophetic etiquettes online, using social media as a tool for spiritual development, and much more. Visit ibnabiomar.com to learn more. Alhamdulillah, <laughs> وبث منهما رجالا كثيرا ونساء واتقوا الله الذي تساءلون به والأرحام إن الله كان عليكم رقيبا يا أيها الذين آمنوا اتقوا الله وقولوا قولا سديدا يصلح لكم أعمالكم ويكفر لكم ذنوبكم ومن يتع الله ورسوله فقد فاز فوزا عظيما أما بعد فإن أستك الحديث كتاب الله وكل الحديث محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وشر الأمور محدثاتها وكل محدثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل دلالة في النار إتابعي meaning the generation after the companions by the name of Uwais al-Qarni rahmatullahi alayhi he narrated he said imagine a person going to fight their enemy they set out for battle and on the way there, they felt that their armor was too heavy, right? Too cumbersome. And so they leave it. And they continue. And then after a while, they felt that the, so their swords and their weapons were too heavy. So they dropped them. And they kept going. And he said, imagine that even their food and water for the journey starts to feel heavy. So they leave that. And then they go, and they come face to face with the enemy, defenseless, weaponless, hungry. How would that person ever win the battle? And he said the same applies to someone who feels that their afghar, their daily remembrance, their daily dua of Allah to be too cumbersome. And so they leave it. And they find the sunnah and the acts of worship of Islam to be too burdensome. And so they become inconsistent in implementing them. And then they complain about a difficult life and feeling shaitan's influence over their heart. How unfortunate. He said they have defeated themselves before they could ever lose to their enemy. They have defeated themselves before they could ever lose to their enemy. And he describes here the daily struggle that a lot of us face. Almost the daily struggle of what it means to be a Muslim. The resilience that is required on a day-to-day -day basis to implement the commands that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us. And in a sense, this is ultimately the the mission that we've been tasked with, right, is that struggle. إِنَّمَا الْمُؤْمِنُونَ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا بِاللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ ثُمَّ لَمْ يَرْتَابُوا وَجَاهَدُوا 
that the believers are those who believe in Allah and His Messenger and then they struggle. They struggle with their wealth and themselves in the path of Allah and then those that do are the truthful. And so we see here this idea of this daily struggle, this daily practice, this way of showcasing on a daily basis our commitment to our religion. The Prophet ﷺ, he said that charity is due upon every joint of a person for every single day that the sun rises. So based essentially that every single day there's an obligation due upon a person. And then he gives examples, there's many hadith that compile different types of examples. But one of them he mentions, reconciling between two people is a charity. Helping someone with their riding animal is a charity. Carrying someone's luggage for them is a charity. A kind word is charity. Every step you take toward the masjid is a charity. Removing something harmful from the road is a charity. Right? And so he lists all of these different things that someone can do. But the point being is that do something, right, of all these different avenues that have been made available. But do something on a daily basis. See, we understand the idea of habits. The things that you do on a daily basis are the things that you become. The actions that we repeat on a day-to-day -day basis land us at a particular destination. And so, if I have a habit of eating a big bowl of ice cream every night before I go to bed, it is going to land me at a particular type of destination. Whether that's desirable or undesirable is for me to figure out. But when it comes to our daily practice of our religion, the, day, the things that we do on a day-to-day -day basis are the things that bring us to that destination of success. And the Prophet emphasizes even further when he said that the most beloved deeds to Allah are those which are small but consistent. Those which are small but on a daily basis you demonstrate your commitment to them. You demonstrate a level of sacrifice for those habits. And so the habit becomes something that you're conscious of on a day-to-day -day basis, such that you almost do it without thinking. And so a person, for example, who has a habit of reciting a certain amount of Qur'an every day, no matter how difficult their days, no matter what crisis they dealt with on that day, no matter how much their routine was derailed on that particular day, no matter how out of it they feel, no matter what hardships they're going through, what stresses they have, when something is a habit, they stay committed to it on a day-to-day -day basis because they know that that daily compounding will get them to the result that they seek. Now when we talk about our daily practice of Islam, it is natural to assume that we're going to focus now on the daily askar, the daily recitation of Qur'an, our daily du'a, the extra prayers, salawat, and so on. And these are absolutely important. I don't mean to undermine, a'udhu billah, or belittle, the importance of those in any form or fashion. But what I want to do today is shine the spotlight a little bit on something that perhaps doesn't get our focus, doesn't get our attention sometimes as much. And that is the idea of our development of character. And it's weird, right, to think about character development as a daily habit, a daily struggle. Something that we're focused on on a day-to-day -day basis. Because when we talk about character in Islam, 
you know, we know, right, we can spout off the quotations, right, the Prophet was said to perfect good character and good conduct and so on. We know all of these things. But ultimately, when we really think and we're asked to assess character, we, we reduce it down somewhat to being polite, right, saying please and thank you, telling our kids to pick up after themselves, to be polite when they meet someone and introduce themselves and to shake hands. And that's kind of how we bucket this idea of good character. And yet we find, when we start to dig a little bit deeper in the sunnah, we find so many stories, so many examples of how character was something that was developed, that was cultivated, that was intentionally focused on. The same way that we want to develop any type of a skill, we want to get repetitions in, right? You want to get reps in, you want to practice, you want to focus on it, you want to get feedback, you want to do all of these things to make sure that you're progressing down that path. But how do you do that on a day-to-day -day basis with something like integrity or honesty? What does a daily habit of integrity look like? How do I think about that on a day-to-day -day basis? You know, do I just wake up and say, today I'm going to live with integrity? No, it's, it's a conscious decision to act in that way when that characteristic is challenged. And so we have to look for ways to cultivate and develop and practice that character. One very beautiful story that kind of illustrates and explains this concept, Anas ibn Malik he narrates, he said that one time we were sitting in the masjid, and the Prophet quotes that a man is going to enter who is a man of paradise. And so they all look up, and an Ansari man walks in, and, and they say that, you know, he just, you could tell from his beard that he just made wudu, and he carried his shoes and walked into the masjid. But that was it. You know, very nondescript almost. The next day, same thing happens. Prophet says, someone from the uh, people, uh, from the people of paradise is going to enter the masjid. They look up, same guy. Wet beard, carrying his shoes, coming into the masjid. Third day, same exact thing happens, same exact Ansari man walks into the masjid. Abdullah ibn Amr he, he's like, I gotta figure this out. He goes up to me, says, hey, brother, I had a fight with my dad, and I told him I'm not going to come home for three days. Can I come stay with you? He says, sure. So Abdullah bin Amr, he goes, he stays with him for three days. At the end of the three days, he goes, brother, look, I got to come clean. I don't really have a fight with my dad, but, you know, here's what happened. The Prophet said that a person from the people of paradise is going to enter the masjid. You came in every night. I'm just trying to see what it is that you do. What's so special? And he even says, he says that he was paying attention and the man didn't even wake up at night to pray. You know, when we think like the best Muslim person or like the most, you know, sacrifice that you can make for the sake of Allah in terms of our worship and all of these things, we envision someone that gets up at night and spends a long time of their night praying the Hajj to Allah. That's where our mind goes, right? This, this grand act of worship that very few people do. So our mind jumps that, okay, he's such a special person, he must be standing at night for so long. He goes, I didn't even see him wake up at night. I didn't even see that. And so the man tells Abdullah bin Amr, he goes, I don't know what to tell you. He goes, what you observed is who I am. This is me. This is how I act every single day. He goes, except the only thing that I can think of is that every night before I go to bed, I clear my heart 
of any grudges that I have against anyone. Anyone that has wronged me, I forgive them. And some, in another narration, he says that I, I find no dishonesty in my soul toward any Muslim. I do not let myself hold any envy for anyone that Allah has given good to. His daily practice, in other words, his daily commitment, his daily habit, was that every night he cleared his heart of any grudges. Right? When we talk about character development, when we talk about all of these virtues and values that we want to uphold, they're not just buzzwords that we say, oh, I guess I'm Muslim, that means I'm kind, I'm respectful, I'm all of these things. No, but it's how are you implementing that on a day-to-day -day basis? Because the thing is, is that, that we can all say what we want, but that character shines through when it is tested. And as you know, when something gets tested, when something gets stressed, we go back to our default state. Right? And so, if I'm not used to being calm, if I'm not having trained myself to restrain my anger, then someone pushes my buttons the wrong way, I'm going to snap. I'm going to yell. I'm going to get angry. You know, we see examples from the life of the Prophet ﷺ when the conquest of Mecca, right? The grand gesture that when he came and he conquered Mecca and he forgave everyone. Even though they had wronged him, they had wronged his family, they had wronged his followers, they had abused them, they had oppressed them. They had tortured them, they had killed them, they had stolen from them. And he forgave them. But the key to keep in mind is that that forgiveness at that scale does not happen unless someone has had the habit of forgiving people regularly throughout their life already. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, siddiq How does one earn that nickname? It's not from one instance of telling the truth, but it is from a lifetime built up that every opportunity where maybe he had the incentive to lie, he didn't. And people recognize that. And he had that reputation that he believed in the Prophet ﷺ, right? Again, this value, this virtue, this characteristic of submitting to Allah, of submitting to his Prophet ﷺ. Abu Bakr had the reputation that he accepted without any hesitation. And because that was his commitment, that was his practice, when it was tested, when it was tested, when the Prophet ﷺ went on the journey of Isra and Mi'raj and he came back and he told the people, I went to Jerusalem last night and came back. And the Quraysh were like, that's it, now we got him, now no one can deny that he's crazy. He's saying he went to Jerusalem and one night and came back. They went to Abu Bakr taunting him. Did you hear what your friend said? He said he went to Jerusalem last night and came back. You still follow him? Right now testing that resolve, testing that faith. And even in that moment, because that was the habit that he had developed, he said, if he said it, I believe it. If he said it, I believe it. There's no hesitation in my heart. Because that was how he had lived his life on a day-to-day -day basis. We find so many narrations about character. Not to become angry, to maintain the ties of kinship. Anas ibn Malik narrating that I served the Prophet for 10 years and he never said oof. He never visibly displayed any type of frustration or annoyance with me. That was his habit. 
And that habit, that action compounded, is what creates the character of the person. And so we think, we reflect. How are we cultivating the character that we want to have? What sacrifices are we making to ensure that we have that character that we aspire to and that will set us upon that destination of true success? Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man walahi. In the beginning of the khutbah, we opened with a quote from the Darby Oasil Governor. He said that imagine a man that's going out for battle and he feels his armor is too heavy, his weapons are too heavy, his food is too heavy, and so he meets the enemy defenseless, weaponless, and hungry, he won't be able to win. He says, similarly, someone that finds their daily practice of Islam, the athqar, the sunnah acts of worship, to be too burdensome and cumbersome, they will have defeated themselves before even giving the enemy a chance. Awais al-Karni has a very interesting story. He has a very interesting story. Awais al-Karni was from Yemen. And his father passed away when he was very young. His mother was blind and needed a lot of care. Always himself, he had leprosy. And it said that he made a lot of dua to Allah to cure him of his leprosy. And Allah cured him except for a small spot on his shoulder, like the size of a coin, the size of a dirham. And it said that a delegations of Muslims used to come, right, to make da'wah. And so ambassadors of Islam, they came to Yemen. And one of them recited this ayah from Surah Nur. For whoever Allah has not given light, there will be no light. And he said that when I heard this ayah, I became Muslim. That's when I accepted Islam. He goes, because I remembered an incident when our lights went out. We didn't have any means of like lighting our lantern or our candle. And that's why I couldn't see. I couldn't see anything. It was pitch black. I didn't know how to get around. He goes, but my mother who was blind has already been used to navigating around the home without being able to see. So he said, I had to follow her around. And so when I heard that ayah, it made sense. He said he accepted Islam. Now he accepts Islam during the time of the Prophet But I mentioned in the beginning that he was a tabi'i, he was not a companion. Because part of the definition of being a companion, right, getting that special designation of being from that generation, is that you had to actually meet the Prophet And so even though he was alive at the same time, he didn't attain that status. In fact, it said that he actually wanted to go and meet him. But his mother told him, I need you to stay and take care of me. He's like, but I really need to go and meet the Prophet sallallahu He said, I really need you to stay and take care of me. So she said, okay, fine, you can go. But stay in Medina for like one or two days, but then you got to come back. You can't stay any longer than that. So he went. And when he got to Medina, the Prophet sallallahu was out on an expedition. So he got a choice. Do I wait? I've already come this far. Do I wait it out or do I go home? And he said that he waited with the time that he had agreed to with his mother 
was not able to meet the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and he went back home. Now the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he told the companions about Awais. He said, he told him, he said that there is a man from Yemen. There is a man from Yemen, from, the, from, a, from Murad, from the tribe of Quran. He had leprosy and he was cured except for a small spot. He has a mother and he treats her extremely well. He is obedient to her. And he is someone that if he was to take an oath and ask Allah, Allah would not turn him away. So if you meet him, if you meet him, ask him to supplicate to Allah for your forgiveness. This is this special man or waste. So the companions, they hear this and they go about their lives, right? Umar radiallahu an, when he is the Khalifa, every year at Hajj, when the delegates from Yemen would come, he would go and ask them, is this man named Owais amongst you? And the answer was no. The next year, is this man Owais from amongst you? No. Ten years, do I talk about dedication, commitment? Ten years go by. Until finally, after those ten years, the delegation comes for Hajj. And they say, yes, there is this man, Awais. It's said that he had waited for his mother to pass away before even embarking on this journey to Hajj. That's how much in service of her he was. So Umar an, he says, you're Awais? He says, yes. From the tribe of, you know, from Murad, from the tribe of Karan, yes, yes. Did you have leprosy? Yes. Do you have a spot? Yes. Let me see that spot on the shoulder, the size of a dirham. Did you have a mother? Yes. Did you take good care of her? Yes. He goes, you are the one that the Prophet told us about. So I ask you, make dua to Allah to forgive me. And Awais looks at him, he says, you're a Sahabi. You're Umar radiallahu an. What do you mean me ask Allah? You ask Allah to forgive me. Right? Look at your status. And he says, no, this is what the Prophet ﷺ told us, you ask. So always supplicates for Umar And then Umar asks him, he says, you know, this, again, this great special man, he's like, can I do anything for you? Do you need anything? Anything at all? Where are you traveling to? Let me call the governor there and make special arrangements, like roll up, you know, whatever you need. How can we help you? How can we be of service to you? And he says, no, I prefer to just travel with my people and not be known. He goes, if you're going to do any favor for me, is that just don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. But of course, people around, they saw what was happening. And so they all start coming and asking him, make dua for us, make dua for us. And eventually he just kind of finally excused himself and left. But that was the special status of Awais al-Qarni rahmatullahi alayhi. Now what's interesting about this story and what elevated his status, right? Such that the Prophet said that he is a man that if he makes a dua, it will be accepted. What is it that elevated his status so high? Amongst a generation, again, even the generation after the companions, but that next generation, the next best generation of mankind that had illustrious scholars of our religion, illustrious leaders, virtuous people. And amongst that crowd, Awais al-Qarni is singled out by name. 
What is it that elevated his status? Yes, it was the care of his mother. Obviously. But let's unpack that just a little bit. What does care for your mother mean? It means that for all those years, and literally we are able to, it's decades. For decades, his top priority was his mother. For decades, he made sure that she had a meal to eat. If something was needed from the market, he went and got it. If she was sick, he sat and he took care of her. Sat at her bedside, took care of any concerns that she had. Sat and spent time with her, talked to her, spent quality time with her. You could almost say it's just the mundane, boring daily actions. Nothing extraordinary, no grand gesture, nothing mind-blowing. Just quite literally, the boring and mundane tasks of tending to what she needed. Cleaning her clothes, getting the food, getting the medicine. Just sitting with her, being available to her. That's what taking care means. And from that action that he did over and over and over again, his status was elevated. But not only that, not only that. See, everyone can say, yes, I respect my parents. I am obedient to my parents. I love my parents. But we live in a society where the culture of our society is where we place our individual success, our individual self-actualization above all else. And so, if I need to sacrifice my family to go to the school that I want, to get the job that I want, to pursue the career that I want, right, to fulfill what I deem to be my potential and my success, Family is often seen as something that holds people back. And so it's not uncommon to see this effect where people strain their family relationships while thinking that they are doing something good. But we learn that when someone values something, right, when we say that we value these characteristics, we value this way of living, we value this character and conduct, that Islam has taught us, then it has to be proven through sacrifice. I have to take care of my parents when it's hard. I have to take, I have to be there for my family when I feel like doing something else, or I feel that something else might be more important. I have to tell the truth when telling the truth might hurt me. I have to exhibit kindness perhaps generosity, even when I really don't feel like it because inside this person just really riles me up. That character that we want to say that we have is proven through those sacrifices, through those actions that we do on a day-to-day -day basis. That is the essence of the struggle. How am I implementing, how am I proving this good conduct through the actions that I do every single day. Inna Allahu malakatahu salluna ala al-Nabi Yaayu al-Ladina aamanu salluna alayhi wa sallimu taslima Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala ali Muhammad 
Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to support the podcast, please subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Google Play or whatever podcast player you use. And please rate and review the podcast. As always, if you share it with a friend that's much appreciated, you can check the show notes for all the details and links. See you in the next episode.